So, um, is, Mark, is Mark Easter here? I guess he just comes when he preaches. Nah, just kidding. That's messed up. I just want to thank him for, for uh, filling in last week. Christine and I had a good time in the desert uh, with her uh, uncle and parents riding stuff through the hills. It, good times of prayer as we went up hills. And Are we going to make it or are we coming back down? But it was good. Uh, so last night, we had a visitor dinner. We had folks over for, for dinner, visitors, learn a little bit about the church. And at one point, we got on the topic of subjects in school, uh, what we enjoyed, what was difficult. I was just wondering, in, in, you know, feel free to answer. What did you guys find difficult in school, high school, college? What were your difficult subjects? Geometry. Geometry. That came out. What else? English for some, physics, that was mine, physics. I thought I was going to be really smart, and then I took physics, and he said, you're not really that smart. Uh, chemistry, those kind of things. One of the things last night, it kind of, uh, you know, my family's kind of math-oriented, but others were, you know, math is kind of geometry, trigonometry, calculus. That's, for many, the difficulty. Well, today, uh, we're coming to the the math of the Bible, I would say. Difficult, kind of difficult subject in the Bible. Two weeks ago, uh, that subject has been mentioned, Tom, and, and as we sang in my chat, is, is the wrath of God. So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about it more than, more than this week. It's going it's to be a number of weeks. So, but, but just in review, two weeks ago, we finished Paul's introduction to the letter of Romans. In chapters 1, verse 16 and 17, he concluded his introduction by proclaiming that he was not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. And how does the gospel save? It saves by revealing the righteousness of God. The good news, the gospel, is that God's righteousness is revealed to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by receiving the righteousness of God provided by Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. And that's the theme of of Romans. And and Paul's going to expand on on that theme in later chapters. We're going to learn more and more about the gospel and how it works and just the joy that we have in the gospel. But After verse 17, after the theme, in verse 18 of chapter 1 in Romans, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul kind of switches gears. He moves from the gospel to focusing on God's wrath against human sin. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, he focuses really on the sinful condition of the Gentile world. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, he deals with the sinful condition of the Jewish world. And in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 20, he summarizes really the condition of all. He's walked through the Gentiles, he's walked through the Jews, and he summarizes it in these verses. And these verses begin with this verse, which sort of summarizes uh, those verses. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. No human being who's ever lived or will ever live, Jew or Gentile, is righteous before God. 
Humanity is sinful by nature. Sin is in our heart. It's part of who we are. I don't know if it's in our DNA, if you'd go that far, but it's, it's in there. And we, and we prove this by our sinful actions. We disobey. We rebel against God. We sin against a holy God. There is no one righteous. That's the point of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And you might ask, why does Paul take, as Tom stole my thunder there, 74 verses to describe this unrighteousness of humanity? There are, there, he didn't know this, I didn't tell him this, but there are 433 verses in Romans. Why do 74 of them deal with our unrighteousness? That's 17%, you can do the math, if you can do the math, that's 17% of the letter. And that seems like a lot of time to spend on a fairly negative subject. So, I want to begin by giving you, before we get to verse 18 specifically, by giving you two reasons for Romans 1, 18 through 3.20. Two reasons why I believe Paul spends and why we will spend so much time looking at God's wrath and our unrighteousness. First, Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3. Verse 20, it equips us to fight sin. That's the first reason. There's a battle that takes place in the life of every believer. A battle to overcome sin, to fight sin. The sin that so easily besets us. You know, Romans chapter 7, when we get there, it talks a lot about that battle. The author of Hebrews writes, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive. We're commanded in the power of the Spirit to fight sin, to strive for holiness. And if you want to fight, and you want to overcome sin in your life, or and or if you want to be used by God to help, help to disciple others in their fight to overcome sin, if you want to grow, and if you want to help others grow in holiness, then you need to understand what causes unholiness. You need to understand the nature of the human heart. The human heart that's been corrupted by sin. And you need to understand the consequences of that corruption. Just like if you want to uh, fight a disease. You're a doctor. You wanna, you're in research. You want to fight uh, a disease. You want to find a lasting cure. Then you must understand the nature of the disease. You need to know the symptoms. You need to know the consequences of the disease. Those who are striving, who are fighting a a physical disease like cancer, spend much of their time studying the the intricacies of the disease. And those who are striving to to fight the spiritual disease of, of a sinful, corrupt heart must also spend time studying the disease. So first, we need to understand sin that we might be equipped to, to fight against it in our lives, in the lives of others. And second, and this is what we'll focus on today, Romans 1, 18-3.20, and I think this is the main reason, uh, establishes our need for the gospel. It establishes our need for the gospel. Remember uh, in verse 16 and 17, Paul described the gospel. This is the theme of the book, the end of his introduction. 
It, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Put simply, these verses promise that those who believe, who have faith, who trust in Jesus Christ, will receive the righteousness of God and therefore be saved. And the question is, what do we need to be saved from? And starting in verse 18, Paul spends the next 74 verses driving home the answer to that question. Note that verse 18 begins with the word for. The word for links verse 18 with what has gone before. For, yes. In verses 16 and 17, Paul summarizes the gospel. And then he explains why the gospel is needed. Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need the righteousness of God to be revealed to us? Why do we need to receive the righteousness of God in us? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We, as as, as Tom said, looking in the mirror, we, the ungodly and unrighteous, we who who in our unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's all I'm going to say about that this week. Next week, we're going to talk about that suppressing the truth. We need the gospel. We need the righteousness of God to be revealed to us. We need to receive God's righteousness. Why? That we might escape the wrath of God. And the path to escaping the wrath of God begins by understanding your need for the gospel. Knowing that you are a sinner. Knowing the nature of sin and the the true condition of your sinful heart. Knowing that there's nothing you can do in yourself to overcome your sin, your unrighteousness. Knowing that in your sinful state, you in fact, we in fact, deserve and will receive nothing less than the holy wrath of God. It's when we understand that our sinful condition when we understand what it leads to, the consequences, that we see the absolute essentialness, the need of the gospel. The gospel becomes good news when we understand the alternative bad news. If I were to walk up to you today and say, uh, good news, brother, good news, sister, they found a cure for Ebola, you might rejoice somewhere, oh, that's good, okay, cool. Knowing that this would save some people in the world, some people wouldn't die because they found this cure. But I don't think it would, it would have that much of an impact on your life. However, what if you lived in a village in Africa where you and everyone you knew was dying from Ebola? Imagine how differently that news would be received. Well, you and I and everyone we know is dying from this disease of sin of unrighteousness. We and everyone we know are destined to receive the eternal wrath of God. But the good news is God has provided an escape, a cure. And that cure is revealed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's when we understand the bad news that our sin has condemned us to receive the wrath of God that our need for the gospel, the good news, that through Jesus Christ we can be made righteous and escape the wrath of God is established. So my prayer, uh, my goal 
really, over the, the next however many weeks we spend in these 74 verses is, is twofold. First, that we would gain a greater uh, understanding of humanity's sinful state. That would become clear to us. So that we would be better equipped to fight sin in our lives. That we would be better equipped to help others grow in holiness to fight the sin in their lives. And second, that we will over and over and over again be reminded of our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The need for the gospel in our lives, the need for the gospel in everyone's life. That we will grow in our love for Jesus, who's, who's at the heart of the gospel, whose sacrificial death is what provides escape from the wrath of God. And that we will grow in our love for sharing the gospel. Because it's through the gospel. The gospel is the only way that those who are unrighteous, like we were, can escape the wrath of God. If these two things can happen, then our time in these 74 verses will be well worth it. Amen? Amen? All right, wake up. Okay, here we are. So now we uh, want to take a closer look at this difficult subject in Romans 118. uh, That we might grow in understanding God's wrath. God's wrath, I've said this before, I think I said it two weeks ago. God's wrath is our, is humanity's greatest problem. We might think it's something else. God's wrath. I mean, fear the Lord who can not only kill you, but cast your soul into hell. God's wrath is our greatest problem. And it's an eternal problem, as we'll see. And therefore, we better understand what it is, especially, and especially how it can be avoided. So let's begin by defining God's wrath, okay? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that word men, just to be clear, includes women. It's mankind, humanity. The problem, it's, women don't get off the hook, just so you're clear. The problem facing the ungodly and unrighteous, and unrighteous, and since Uh, there is no one righteous, the problem facing everyone is the wrath of God. So what is the wrath of God? We don't, in our day, uh, really use that term wrath very very much. Most of us have heard of John Steinbeck's uh, novel, The Grapes of Wrath, right? We know what that means? Uh, Okay, don't tell us, because I don't know. He took it from the title... The battle from the uh, he took the title "The Grapes of Wrath" from the battle hymn of the Republic. You know, mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. No, coming of the Lord. Wait, let me do this right. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the. Wait, that is not right. Okay, let's all together now. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are. What the heck is that? I don't know. I I, I didn't do any research on it because I don't know what that means. Uh, But there's another famous literary work that uses the word wrath that I understand completely. Star Trek, 
the wrath of Khan. All right? I know Steinbeck to Star Trek, I don't know. So if, you, if you've seen the movie, you know, but if you haven't, in this movie, one of the greatest movies of all time, wait, don't put that up yet. You guys, are, you're revealing the... All right, thanks. In this movie, uh, Captain Kirk faces the wrath of this genetically engineered human. His name is Khan. Fifteen years prior, uh, on Star Trek, the original series, after Khan had tried to take over the Enterprise, Kirk marooned him and his crew and his wife on this harsh but habitable habitable planet. Anybody know the name of the planet? You get SETI Alpha. Oh, man. You are as nerdy as they come. However, so this was an okay planet. It was tough, but you could, you could survive it. However, shortly after they were marooned, uh, a nearby planet, City Alpha 6, uh, exploded. And it caused the orbit of City Alpha 5 to have troubles, and it caused life on City Alpha 5 to be uh, almost impossible. Khan's wife and his crew, much of his crew died. So when Khan escapes, we won't go into how he does that, the first item on his agenda is to seek vengeance against Kirk. And at one point in the movie, as they battle, Khan says to Kirk, now, it's up there, I see it back here, to the last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. Now that gives us a, a, a good insight into wrath. The word itself means severe anger, vengeance, indignation. And it's more than an emotional feeling. It includes the action of wrath. And what we need to know, what we need to get what the Bible teaches, what Paul says here in Romans, what we need to always remember, what we can't and shouldn't avoid in some effort to make God more acceptable to the world, is that God is a God of wrath. Now, unlike the wrath of Khan, God's wrath is right and holy and just. But it's no less severe. In fact, it's more severe. Because God being all-powerful, when an all-powerful being pours out His wrath upon you, watch out. We fail. We fail to understand the severity of God's wrath because we fail to hate sin. We entertain sin. We flirt with temptation. We overlook wrongdoing in our lives. We make excuses in our lives and in the lives of others. But the holy God who created us in His image, who created us not for sin, but for relationship with Him, He hates sin with a passion. David wrote in Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God hates sin. God hates evil. David says he hates evildoers. Love the sin, hate the sinner. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Wait, I did that wrong twice. Hate the sin, love the sinner. 
David would call that into question with these verses. David says he hates evildoers. And therefore, his right and righteous wrath will be poured out on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It will happen. So we have a definition for God's wrath. It refers to his severe anger, vengeance even, poured out upon the ungodly and unrighteous. It's God's punishment for sin. God's wrath, Paul says, is revealed. It's poured out. God's wrath can be seen. And that's our second point, is seeing God's wrath. First we see it, if we look, if we look into the Old Testament, we see God's wrath. In fact, when we, when we think about the wrath of God, our thoughts uh, usually turn to the Old Testament, don't they? The book of Nahum begins with this description of God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Old Testament is filled with examples of God's jealous vengeance and wrath. The flood that destroyed every person on earth except Noah and his family can't be avoided. Wrath of God. The destruction of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Wrath of God. The ten plagues against Egypt. Wrath of God. The destruction of the Canaanites. When the children of Israel entered the promised land. Wrath of God. And these are just a few of the Old Testament examples of of God's wrath being poured out on unrighteousness. Now some people think that, that God's wrath ended when the Old Testament closed. That in the New Testament, we have a new and a different God. That He's done away with His wrath and only expresses Himself in love and grace and mercy. But that's not the case. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Therefore, God's wrath is also seen in the New Testament. Now granted, in the New Testament, we don't have the the big displays, the uh, Cecil B. DeMille movie, uh, Wrath of God. But God's wrath did not disappear. In John 3, verse 36, Jesus promises, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And from the book of Revelation, we know that God's wrath will be revealed in the future. In Revelation 19.15 we read, From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. There will be a final outpouring of God's wrath against the nations against those who rebel against Him. And, and, and it's in the New Testament. Not the Old Testament. The New Testament where we find the clearest teaching that for some, God's wrath will be experienced for all eternity. This is a terrible thing. This is a terrible thing. Paul writing about the coming judgment of Christ says, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That's serious. God's wrath, His punishment will eternally 
be eternally poured out on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who persist in their unrighteousness, rejecting Christ as their Lord and Savior. So the wrath of God is revealed. It's seen in both the Old and the New Testaments. But God's wrath is also being revealed. It's being seen and experienced in our world. For the wrath of God is revealed, Paul says. The word revealed is, is, is the, in the present continuous tense. Which means the wrath of God is, is being revealed at all times. Not just in the past or the future, but right now. We see it all around us. In the book of Romans, Paul speaks of at least three ways that the, the wrath of God is revealed. First, we see God's wrath in, in death. In death. Death is God's judgment. His punishment on the ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. This is the result of the fall, the immediate result. We can thank our father Adam for this. We see this explained in Romans chapter 5. In this chapter, Paul is comparing uh, Jesus with Adam. The first Adam with, with the second Jesus. In verse 15, he says, For if many died through one man, Adam's trespass, the result of Adam's sin was death. Then in the middle of verse 16, death is called judgment and condemnation. For the judgment on Adam's sin, following one trespass, death, brought condemnation. So death is God's judgment, His condemnation of sin. It's an expression of His wrath against an ungodly and unrighteous world. So first, in our world, we see God's wrath in death. Second, we see God's wrath in, in suffering and futility. In Romans chapter 8, 18-20, Paul writes, For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject, subjected to futility. Stop there and, and think about what it means before we finish verse 20. Paul's talking about creation. That it's waiting. It, it's longing for the glory to be revealed. It's longing for some kind of transformation. That's in the future. But notice what he says about the present. That in the present, uh, uh, the present time there's suffering. And, and the creation was subject, subjected to futility. That word futility means vanity or, or meaninglessness. So Paul is saying that, that right now, suffering and futility are, are par for the course in our world. It's just how it is. And we know that. We know that on a daily basis. The newspaper tells us that. Our lives tell us that. There's pain, there's suffering, there's futility. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like an episode of Little House on the Prairie sometimes. Paul labors all during the spring to plant his crops. And when the grain is ready to sprout, a flood or a fire or a locust come and take it away. It, it, looks, it, it looks like uh, Christina's Aunt Mary and Uncle Ron. They worked as teachers most of their life, saving for retirement, hoping to enjoy retirement together. And before they could fully enjoy their retirement, Mary had a stroke. There's suffering. And all the planning seems futile. And there are thousands of other ways that our plans are foiled by a fallen world. 
At the fall, the creation was subjected to suffering and and to futility. And let's read the rest now of Romans 8.20 to see who's responsible. And you might be surprised. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. This means that God subjected the creation to to suffering and futility. It wasn't Satan or Adam Because Paul said it was done in hope. God showed His wrath against sin by subjecting creation to suffering and futility. Not not for eternity, not as the last word, but in hope. In hope that, that this suffering and this futility would lead some to repentance. We'll look at that in a minute. We have hope that there's coming a day when creation will be restored. Suffering and futility will be no more. But for now, suffering and futility in our world are are a revelation of God's wrath against unrighteousness. So we see that God's God's wrath in death, in suffering, in futility, and finally we see God's wrath in unrestrained sin. Unrestrained sin. This is seen right after in Romans chapter right after right away in Romans chapter one. You see it three times in Romans chapter 1, 24 through 28. After describing the uh, unrighteousness, ungodliness of man in, in verses 19 through 23, Paul says in 24, Therefore, because of your unrighteousness, because of your uh, rejection of me, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In other words, God reveals His wrath against sin by giving people up to more sin. Allowing sin to go unrestrained. Again, in verse 16, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And again in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a a debased mind to do what ought not be done. The sin we see in our world today is not only sin against God, but it's judgment from God against our unrighteous people who have rejected Him in favor of their own sinful pursuits. Now I know, just so you're aware, some of you are going, ah, question, question. I know that as we've briefly looked at these verses, uh, uh, showing God's wrath, showing God's wrath in death and in suffering and futility, Unrestrained sin. I know that for many of you have questions about God being responsible, God being involved in these painful things. And we'll look at those questions when we come to those verses in our study. But for now, I just want us to understand that, that these, in these three ways, the wrath of God is now, today, being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. He's decreed that, that all will die. He's subjected all to suffering and futility. And He's given many over to unrestrained sin. This is the bad news. That God's wrath is being revealed in our world today. But this makes the good news so much sweeter. The good news that for those who trust in Jesus Christ, God's wrath is satisfied. That's our third point. Satisfying God's wrath. We saw God's wrath revealed in the Old Testament. We saw God's wrath in the New Testament. But I left out really the most important example. 
What's the most important example of God's wrath being revealed? Anyone? The cross. The crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, He died in our place. And He took upon Himself our sin. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And when Christ was made to be sin, the wrath of God, the wrath of God that we deserved for our unrighteousness, and this is, uh, as you know, you'll, you'll notice, when we sing songs, oftentimes we put up a slide before a song, and, and that, song, that slide says, the scandalous cross. Have you noticed that? This is the scandalous cross that Jesus died in our place. That He took the wrath of God that we deserved upon Himself. That God's wrath was poured out upon Him. When Jesus from the cross cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? At that moment, the wrath of God was revealed to Jesus Christ. He took upon Himself the punishment for our sins. And for the first time in in all eternity, He was separated from His Father. The Gospel is that in Christ, God Himself receives the wrath of God. And this, this, this is where it come, all comes together for those who believe, for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. For in Christ, the wrath of God is satisfied. Paul makes this clear. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. That's our problem. We've sinned. We've all fallen short of, of God's glory. We're destined to receive God's wrath. But that's not the end. Verse 24 continues, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've all sinned. We are all destined for, to receive God's wrath. But by the grace, the free gift of God, we're justified. We're made righteous. We're redeemed. We're saved from God's wrath in Christ Jesus. And how are we justified and redeemed in Christ? Verse 25, whom God, speaking of Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation means an atoning victim, a a sacrifice. God put His, His Son, Christ, forward as an atoning sacrifice. Jesus on the cross died. He shed His blood in our place so that the Father's wrath would be on Him and not on us. Not on those who put their faith in Christ. It's as if if we were on trial for a series of terrible crimes. The evidence is clear. We're found guilty. The judge rightly sentences us to death. But then the judge's son steps forward and offers to take our place. He's then led off to receive the penalty that we deserved. By, by Christ, by the judge's Son, receiving the wrath that we deserved, God's wrath is satisfied. And this is the ultimate good news. This is the, the great news. That if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, 
we accept his offer to take our place. You know, as he said, I'll take your place. He said, no, 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 I'll handle this. You know, you get to receive the wrath of God. But if you allow Christ to take your place, if you trust in Christ, then he takes the wrath of God for you. We receive not the wrath of God in Christ, but we receive the righteousness of God. This is the gospel that saves us from God's wrath, and therefore we can rejoice. We can rejoice that there is more than God's wrath. It's our final point for today. More than God's wrath. God's wrath is real. It's seen and experienced in the past, the present, and the future. But wrath is not God's only response. Wrath is not God's only response to unrighteousness and ungodliness. There's more to God than His wrath. Even even for the unbeliever. Even in the lives of those who are in rebellion against God. Those who continue in their ungodliness and unrighteousness. His wrath is always accompanied by His mercy. That's why we can, uh, John can write, For God so loved the world, even those that will experience His wrath. God for loved the world because He's doing more than one thing. Paul makes it clear, Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? This is speaking to those who haven't trusted in Christ. Or, or do you presume on, on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Yes, there's kindness in the midst of wrath. Kindness meant to lead to repentance. But if that kindness is continually rejected, the wrath that is stored up will one day be poured out. John Piper explains the combination of God's wrath and kindness this way. He says, God warns with His wrath and He woos with His kindness. He speaks both languages, severity and tenderness. The Gospel is bilingual. It speaks two languages. To the unbeliever, God is speaking to you in your pain to warn you. And God is speaking to you in your pleasure to woo you. Don't miss His voice. Repent. Put your faith in Christ. Allow Christ to satisfy the wrath stored up against you for that day of judgment. So there's more than wrath for the unbeliever. And there's much, much more than wrath for the believer. For the believer, according to Romans 1.17, we have the gift of God's righteousness by faith. And as we've seen, God's wrath that we deserve was poured out on Jesus Christ. Jesus took our place. He satisfied the wrath of God. And He gave us His righteousness. This is where it gets really good. And therefore, Romans 1.8 says to the believer, there is therefore no, now no condemnation, no punishment, no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Now you might ask, so this is, 
This is, these are sort of, we sort of think of that in the future tense, right? We sort of think of uh, uh, that final wrath, that we're going to escape that. But you might ask, what about God's wrath that's being revealed in our world today? What about death? And, and the things we talked about, death and suffering and futility and unrestrained sin, are, are these still the wrath of God against us? And if not, what are they? Because we're experiencing them just like our, our neighbors. Uh, because you're a believer does not mean you, that, that, that you and people you love won't die. Because you're a believer, it does not mean that you, people you love, won't suffer. Because you're a believer, it doesn't mean that you or the people you love will not be impacted by unrestrained sin that's all, all around us. So what does it mean for us? The answer is that for the believer, death and suffering and sin no longer reveal the wrath of God. They're no longer condemnation and punishment from our Heavenly Father. For we are no longer ungodly and unrighteous. Through Christ, God's wrath has been satisfied. We've been made righteous. And therefore, the effects of God's wrath in the life of the believer are changed. They're transformed by God. They're transformed by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because for believers, and we're going to look at each of these three as we conclude, death leads to heaven. For believers, the sting and and victory of death has been removed. The wrath of death is gone. Uh, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For believers, death is no longer the wrath of God towards us. It is the the last gasp of a defeated enemy who unwittingly opens the door to to paradise, to eternity with God in His presence. I've had the opportunity to be a part of, to attend many funeral services. And the difference between the funeral for an unbeliever and a believer is night and day. It's heaven and hell. For the believer, death is which for many in this world is the worst case scenario, is a cause for rejoicing. Because death leads to heaven. Death leads to eternity in the presence of God. Death leads to heaven. Death has been transformed. And for the believer, suffering leads to transformation. For the believer, futility, you know, of, uh, uh, wrath means suffering and futility. For the believer, the futility is removed. Because Paul says, Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, suffering works together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Suffering is even for our good in God's hand. That's how James could write, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith Produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The trials, the the suffering, the pain in this life no longer need produce futility because we know God is at work. 
God is using them in our lives to transform us, to make us more like Him, to draw us closer to Him, to, to burn away the, 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 the negative things that still remain within us, to draw us closer to holiness, closer to the image of Christ. So death leads to heaven, suffering leads to transformation. And finally, for the believer, unrestrained sin is replaced by righteous living. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. God does not give us over to unrestrained sin. He doesn't give us over to the desires of the flesh. He restrains us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that He gives to the believer works in our lives to convict us of sin and to lead us into righteous living. For the believer, even in this sinful fallen world, we are no longer subject to the wrath of God. So let us always understand the truth of Romans 1.18. That the wrath of God is being revealed now in this age against ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. We can't understand our sinful world or our need for the gospel without understanding this truth. But let us also understand and let us live with the truth that God is revealing something else, something more at the same time. He's revealing the gospel, the gift of righteousness for all who believe in Christ. And with that righteousness, there is no wrath on us anymore. For you, whoever you are, those who believe, know this, rejoice in this, worship God for this. For you, death leads to heaven. Suffering leads to your own transformation, becoming more like Christ. And sin is replaced by righteous living through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's conclude today and and pray, thanking God that in Christ His wrath is satisfied. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's it's difficult for us sometimes to think of of Your wrath, Lord. Of the the punishment that comes upon the unrighteousness and ungodliness in this world, Lord. And so we pray for understanding of that, Lord. And we thank You that You and Christ Jesus have provided an escape. Lord, we thank You that Your wrath has been satisfied in Christ. Lord, we, we love You for sending Your Son who gave up His life, who experienced separation from You, who experienced the wrath of God that we did not have to, Lord. We praise You and we honor You and we worship You. And we love You in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Stand with us.